0: Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. My name is Paul Coyer, I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, A lot of people that don't know who we are think that we're a think tank, although we do think and we like to think we're smart, we're actually a graduate school of foreign policy and national security. We have a a bunch of different master's degrees, two-year master's and one-year certificates. Um, I've known Prince Ali for I guess about three years now. I had a friend of mine who'd done research for Special Operations Command and spent time in Afghanistan come and give a talk. And uh, one of the audience members was this Afghan prince who knew more about Mm -hmm. Afghanistan than any of us will ever know. Uh, And I was so honored to have him there that I then hosted him a month or two later on his own and have had him here periodically and we do various meetings and we can say we're co-conspirators in some ways on trying to save Afghanistan. so as I mentioned, I'm a research professor here. I don't am not actually a South Asia specialist. I do Russia, China, and how religion and culture shapes geopolitics. Uh, religion and culture obviously very much shape South Asia and Afghanistan. It's a very important issue. Uh, Prince Ali is, as you will see, uh, very, very entertaining to listen to. He has more stories, and I think most of them are actually true, than uh, anybody I've ever met. And a lot of them are in this new book. So unfortunately, as he probably, some of you found out, we've sold out. Which is a good problem to have. But we're trying to get more from politics and prose in the next hour or so. So by the time we're done, we may have some more left over uh, out there. So The Lost Kingdom. Memoir of an Afghan Prince. Um, I have not actually read it myself, but I suspect I know most of these stories yes. from talking to Prince Ali. Uh, and I can tell you that if they're anything like our personal conversations, you will not be able to put this down. Um, so we have plenty of time, so feel free, if you have to go at a certain time to go, we're not gonna stay here for hours, but I told him to talk until about five, so a little under an hour, then we'll have about a half hour q and I guarantee you, you'll have a lot of questions, so we'll, we'll use that time up. And then afterward, if any of you still have the time, and, and I do, and Prince Ali does, we can stick around here and just mill around informally and talk as well. And again, hopefully we'll have some books uh, coming soon. So, um, Prince Ali, I think most of you probably have seen the bio. Um, <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the nice people here helpfully spelled out in phonetics how to say all these names, which uh, luckily I already know, so it's not an issue. But uh, his uh, uncle was the last king of Afghanistan. He was involved, uh, Prince Ali, in a, in a lot of interesting things uh, from the history of Afghanistan, uh, the tragic history, and also some good things. Um, I don't know if he'll talk about it today, but one of the things he did was start a small chain of Austin Powers-style discotheques in Kabul in 1970. Um, When Kabul was a very boring place, when Westerners were just at their wit's end because there was nothing to do. And he said, I'll give you something to do. And it was a great business opportunity. He found a niche. And uh, from what you told me, right, you had MI6, Mossad, CIA, KGB, everybody hanging out. (laughs) Nobody got hurt. But, uh, you know, girls in platform shoes and the disco
1: lights. Yeah, so
0: he's a good Muslim, as you can tell. He's, he's, he, uh, he did that, and um, that got closed down. But he just led an interesting life. So uh, anyway, without further ado, I, I give you Prince Ali Siraj.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to IWP. It's a pleasure to stand here in front of you and talk to you about my favorite subject, which is Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan, of course, uh, being my homeland. I'm the son of Afghanistan, but when I first came to the United States in 1960s to attend the University of Connecticut, nobody knew Afghanistan. And uh, the international uh, uh, student body uh, threw a party at the International House to which I was invited and I was mingling around the people and this very beautiful girl came in and she introduced herself, I don't remember her name, but she was from a sorority called Kappa Kappa Gamma, and she asked me where I was from and I said I was from Afghanistan. I said, oh, that's very nice. So what part of the United States is that? <laughs> so that, was very, that was very, very surprising for me and I, I, I didn't know how to answer her. Then another lady came and she said, Afghanistan, oh yes, I have an Afghan. I said, oh, that's very nice, that's very nice. She said, I love my Afghan. And now that made me feel very good, you know, because this Afghan must be such a nice person that she loves him. So this Afghan keeps me so warm in winter. Now I started blushing. Why is she telling me her deep, dark secrets? Until she re- she saw the uh, look of surprise on my face. She said, do you know what I'm talking about? She said, no. She said, it's a shawl. I said, oh. They call an Afghan. So the, only th- the three things that we are known was the Afghan blanket. This young lady who did not know what part of Afghanistan, uh, what part of United States Afghanistan was, and the Afghan hound. Outside of that, nobody knew anything about Afghanistan. Today, everybody knows where Tora Bora is and who Osama bin Laden is, and where Afghanistan is and why Afghanistan is becoming the longest war of the United States of America. War to us is nothing new, you know. Afghanistan being the uh, the belly button of Central Asia. With uh, Unfortunately, I don't have a map. I hold my hand because this is the way Afghanistan is. Right over here the tip of my thumb is China. Next to it is Tajikistan. Next to that is Uzbekistan. Next to that is Turkmenistan. Then you have Iran and all around here you have Pakistan. Afghanistan is surrounded by five Islamic uh, nations. But this was not the way Afghanistan was historically. Historically, Afghanistan was a very large country and we had a way to the ocean. Afghanistan uh, being in the center of San, in the middle of Central Asia we were the gateway for all the uh, invaders of the world. If you were to write a book on who's who of the invaders of the world, you'd surely write it on Afghanistan from Tamerlane to Genghis Khan to uh, Alexander the Great. In fact, Afghanistan has never ever been conquered by anybody. Uh, They have come in, they have stayed, but they have uh, lost. In fact, Alexander the Great laid siege to the gates of Kabul for six months and he could not conquer Afghanistan, so he diverted his way and he went into India, but a part of his uh, soldiers stayed behind in an area of Afghanistan which is near Pakistan and the Pakistan-Afghan border which we call now Nuristan. The recent wars of Afghanistan started during the Uh, reign of my forefathers. My great-grandfather, nine generations uh, removed, uh, King Dost Mohammad Khan established Afghanistan in 1827. And the British at the time was in India and they had great concern about the the Russians coming through Afghanistan to go to the warm waters to invade India. So they always wanted to influence Afghanistan. So in, uh, in the 1800 and uh, the mid, uh, 1830s, they invaded Afghanistan, replaced my great grandfather nine generations removed with another king, and they uh, they was uh, uh, Durrani, uh, and uh, he he was there for a short period of time because the people uh, immediately rebelled against the British, and under the uh, 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 directing direction or control of my grand-uncle Wazir Barhan. Khan. Uh, war started in 1838 and from 1838 to 1842 we fought the British and we defeated them. We chased them out of, of uh, Kabul and out of 16,500 uh, British soldiers and Indian sepoys, 248 women and children were taken as hostage. The rest of them were killed. Only one man made it alive to an area uh, city called Jalalabad near or what is now Pakistan, and his name was Dr. Bryden. Afghanistan came back into our own hands. Then we continued, my family continued ruling Afghanistan until 1878, when the British again decided to invade Afghanistan. And at that time my grand great grandfather uh, Mahdyakub uh, was the king of Afghanistan. And uh, this was the second Anglo-Afghan war, which was called the Battle of Maiwand. And this is the, uh, in this battle, the British lost, uh, shamefully, because of, uh, they lost an entire regiment of 30,000 troops uh, in, in the deserts of uh, an area near Kandahar called Maiwand. And uh, so we defeated the British a second time. The third time, when my grandfather was assassinated in 1919, and... Uh, To this day, we are convinced that the British were behind it. Uh, My uncle, Amanullah, the second son, uh, actually the third son, but uh, we consider him a second because one of the other eldest sons was not too well liked by the family. Uh, He became the king of Afghanistan. And immediately at that time, as the first king of Afghanistan of a free Afghan uh, nation, he declared war against the British and also recognized the Bolshevik government of Russia. So as the first leader of a of a native country he recognized the the Russian government and then at the same time he declared war against the British and we went to the third Anglo-Afghan war. Before these wars even though the British were not in Afghanistan and we had defeated them we were not allowed to have any control over a foreign policy. All our foreign policies were controlled by the British we were only allowed to be involved within the Uh, Internal policy. (coughs) My great, let me uh, see if I can get some pictures. Uh, This uh, uh, was—I will come to that story later. Uh, This is my grandfather, and King Amalullah is the one to his left. He was a young man, 18 at the time. And to his right is uh, his oldest son, Inayatullah. They they were all kings, but uh, after Amalullah abdicated, Inayatullah took over. But by that time, the insurgents. Had uh, taken over the country. These are the young princesses from Afghanistan. This is Queen Suraya, uh, the wife of King Amanullah, and uh, she uh, she was the one in 1921 when the Afghanistan's constitution was written. Uh, she put there the clause of uh, right, uh, the the rights of the Afghan women to be able to vote. So Afghanistan was the first country in central in, in that whole area. In, in fact, uh, even Europe, at the time when the Afghan women got the right to vote in 1921, the European women didn't have any right to vote and neither did I think the women in, in, in the United States. <coughs> anyway, Queen Soraya was well educated, spoke uh, several languages. She was young and uh, she started the fr- uh, freedom of the Afghan the freedom uh, women's freedom movement. Unfortunately, <coughs> the rule of... Uh, uh, amal did not last very long. When amal defeated the British, uh, he immediately set out on a trip to Europe to introduce Afghanistan to different countries in the world. And uh, one of the places he went to first was England. And uh, I'm sorry, these pictures are not in order, so, oh yes. When he went to England, he was received by King George V. And as you can see, King George is not feeling very comfortable sitting next to my uncle. Um, uh, because uh, here's a small nation that defeated, you know, the the lion of the world at that time. The sun did not rise or set on the British Empire, but we defeated them. And uh, so, this is a welcoming group in, in London uh, to greet my uncle. Uh, where this is a picture of Queen Soraya that uh, I sh- showed you before. Uh, the British wanted, even though they were defeated in Afghanistan, they still wanted to in, have influence in Afghanistan. So they tried to convince my uncle not to receive any help from anybody else but from the British. But my uncle could not accept it. So he, when he went to Russia on his, on his trip back to Afghanistan, he accepted assistance from the Russians and the British did not like that. And so before my uncle entered Afghanistan, they uh, paid a highway thief, 50,000 pounds. His name was uh, uh, the son of a water carrier who started an insurgency against my uncle and they used this photograph of a bare-armed queen uh, as uh, uh, as a a Muslim woman who had turned against the Islamic religion and they distributed this over the villages in Afghanistan and started this insurgency. And that insurgency uh, forced my uncle to abdicate because my uncle did not want to stay in the country and fight his own people. because He said that the blood of his people was more important to him than the throne of Afghanistan. If they wanted to, if they did not like what he was doing, here is the throne, do with it as you please. And he left with his family, and he was deceived in Italy by King Emmanuel, and he spent the rest of his life in, in in Italy, and also in, he died in Switzerland. Afghanistan, from 19, uh, in, uh, the, the rebels uh, ruled Afghanistan only for nine months. The British realized that uh, the people that they had put in power, but they were nothing, they were uneducated, uh, what do you call it? Uh, road uh, yeah, uh, they, they were un- totally uneducated. And so uh, c- uh, the British uh, convinced my relatives, King Shah with his brothers who were living in Paris at the time, uh, to come to Afghanistan and take over the country. And with the help of the British, they entered Afghanistan and they took over Afghanistan. Uh, and, but they took it in the name of King Amanullah. Because the people had realized their mistake and they wanted Amanullah back. So he came and he said, I want to i'm taking this throne back for Amanullah. So the people supported him. And when he succeeded in dethroning the uh, rebel uh, thieves, uh, he proclaimed himself the king in 1930, in 1930 end of 29. In 1933, while inspecting his school children, he was assassinated. And uh, in fact, he was assassinated by the son of a very uh, good friend of my uncle. His name was Qulam Nabi uh, Khan Charhi. And in fact, his grandson is right here in the audience sitting back there, was, uh, had supported uh, my uncle uh, to the very end. And then when my uncle abdicated, he also left and he went to Turkey. But then he was asked, when the new king uh, took over, he asked him to come back. When he came back, he asked him to pay allegiance to him. He said no, that he will not pay allegiance to him. His allegiance was to Omanullah. So he was killed under the stock of the gun. And uh, so Nadir Shah took over, and three years later, the son of the servant of Olam Siddiq, uh, during the in- school inspection, shot assassinated Nadir Shah, and his son Zahir Shah, who was at that time. I'm sorry, I'm going very fast. You know, I'm a fast train. Amtrak has got a lot of power right now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Zahir Shah became the king of Afghanistan in 1933. He was only 17, but in order to become the king, he had to be 18. So they gave him one year. You know, we have, we easily give uh, gifts like that. You know, like we have we have more generals in Afghanistan. You know, they have they have not seen the the, the, the grounds of the military. All of a sudden, they become generals. You know, General Dostum and General This and General That, Doctorate General. These are easy the titles. That we, in fact, you know, I should open up a university for giving doctorates and general the titles. Uh, so in any case, um, Shah became the king, but he was, he was very young, so his three uncles ruled Afghanistan uh, until uh, the early 1950s. Uh, in early 1950s, uh, Daoud, the last president of Afghanistan who got assassinated, became the prime minister. He was the first cousin of the king and also the brother-in-law of the king. And he was—he uh, became the prime minister of Afghanistan. Immediately, he looked to the United States for assistance. United States uh, sent uh, then Vice President Nixon to Afghanistan to see uh, what could be done. When Mr. Nixon arrived in Afghanistan with his wife Pat, uh, and in Kabul, uh, like uh, Brazil, we have these favelas—you know, these houses that are built on the mountains—and uh, uh, so Nixon met with the government and Pat was on a tour of Kabul uh, at night and he, she saw all these lights and the next day she wanted to know where the high rise buildings are in Afghanistan. They said well, we don't have high rises, you know, those the are houses on the mountain. So when Mr. Nixon returned back to report to President Eisenhower uh, and he reported to the Congress of the United States that uh, the American taxpayers' money should not be wasted on a barbaric nation like Afghanistan. This is part of history, this is his exact statement to uh, the Congress and to President Eisenhower. That really ticked off Dawood. Dawood had a brother, his name was Naeem. So they decided to divide the power in two different ways. Dawood immediately went to Russia and requested help from Russia. And the Soviet Union was waiting for a chance like this. So immediately the first help that they gave us was all these secondhand military, Second World War, military equipment, tanks and you name it, you know, it started pouring into Afghanistan. And, uh, but Naeem, on the other hand, was playing the, his hand towards the west. This east-west uh, a relationship continued to, to, uh, throughout uh, Dawood's uh, uh, term as a, as a prime minister. In uh, 1963, the king decided it was time for Afghanistan uh, to become a constitutional monarchy, but could not become a constitutional monarchy if his own family was there, so the, the constitution said, uh, the relatives of the king could not hold any high positions within the government and uh, it would be a government of the people, by the people, for the people and uh, they elected a parliament. So I'm going very fast, you know, but when you read the book you'll get the details. In 19, uh, from 63 to 73, Afghanistan was in a beautiful... This is when I built... I was in the United States, I did my education at the University of Connecticut and I came back to Afghanistan I went to London, my sister was in London at the time, and uh, I was walking last night in London, I was walking and I was hungry and I said, let's eat something. So I saw a sign that said the 25th hour, and I liked that, I stuck in my head, I said, this is great. So when we were inside, I told my sister, I said, I think I'll open up a restaurant in Kabul called the 25 hour. So as soon as I arrived, I told certain family members that I was going to open up a discotheque and they all laughed at me. Discotheque? In Kabul? Alcohol? Are you mad? I said, no, no, no. I said, here, I've spent years in the United States. I was going to clubs and discotheques, and over here, there's nothing to do. We are sitting in a restaurant drinking green tea on a Thursday night. Friday, Fridays, Fridays are Sabbath. So Thursday night, there are three men sitting over there, three cousins, drinking tea. I said, this, 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 this will not do So on the corner of a newspaper, I did a little drawing, and I said, this is going to be my club. So the next day I went around the city, I located uh, two shops, which belonged to my cousin. I rented the shop within three months. Uh, that's how you have about two, two to three months. I had the most beautiful, well-decorated uh, club in the region, not only in Afghanistan. Velvet walls in know. The- Chinese silk uh, couches, and one bar outside serving only Coca-Cola and soft drinks, but there was a bar way in the back, you know, we served any alcohol you wanted. Uh, <clears throat> so we started, you know, I started this movement at the same time, one night this German guy comes to me and he says, uh, would you like me to build you a dance floor? I said, I have a dance floor. He said, no, no, this is concrete, I make you a glass dance floor. I said, how much is this glass dance floor going to cost me? He said, nothing. I said, there's nothing for nothing. I said, how much do you want? He said, just give me my lunch and my dinner. I will design this for you. So without doing any backup check, I said, okay, go ahead. So that's the same evening. We closed the club, dug the floor up, put the glass bricks in and lights, about 250 lights underneath the thing. And then a week later, we inaugurated the dance floor 250 lights, you know, shining underneath uh, in different patterns, and a black light shining up here. It was very funny was the first night when the the girl, Afghan girls came in. They all they are very all very well dressed. You know, black uh, outfit uh, blouses, and so on and so forth. As soon as I turned the black light on, all the s- bras underneath started shining through the blouses, and so there was a lot of confusion and commotion. They were hiding, themselves, running in different directions. After that. <coughs> After that, they (laughs) (laughs) decided. I I did not believe me. (laughs) Uh, After after that, you know, they got used to it, so they dressed dressed, uh, properly. But I, I never knew until I left Afghanistan why this German did what he did. Later on, I found out that he was an East German spy. And the manager that I had hired, was a Frenchman, and he was a Chinese spy, who was married to a relative of Mao Tung. So I did not know about this. You know, all I was interested was my club. You know, I had people like uh, Leon Hurst come to my club. Uh, Hollywood people came in. In fact, the Emperor of Japan, who's now the Emperor, at that time he was Crown Prince. He and his wife were in my club. All the ambassadors, they were all there, and 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 you name it. You know. Uh, the CIA, the FBI, the uh, 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 Mossad, uh, uh, the uh, Russia, Russia's uh, uh, what's his name, KGB. It was very funny when the KGB would come in immediately to CIA members would walk in, and then from this side the side um, the MI6 would walk in. I mean, I knew all of them. I mean, everybody knew, including top uh, drug dealers. You know, uh, in fact, I you will see in the book. Uh, that uh, I, the U.S. Embassy, asked for my help and so I assigned somebody to follow these big drug dealers, you know, they were buying at that time hashish and uh, uh, to find out who they are and then report them to the Embassy. I didn't want to get myself in there but I had assigned somebody to do the work. So the club became a very, very popular place, very popular. Eventually uh, the coup of uh, 1973 occurred and uh, uh, the coup of 73, my beautiful wife who was sitting in the crowd, uh, she uh, was in Afghanistan when the coup occurred, and uh, it was uh, very funny. At uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, and there was uh, I, we heard the sound of gunfire going on, and uh, uh, I jumped out of bed, and I went to the window, and there was full moon, you know, and my guard was downstairs. I said, what's going on? He said, well, we heard the fire coming. My My house was within the... Diplomatic uh, community, and uh, so I grabbed hold of my gun and I ran downstairs. And my <laughs> cousin, who was a general in the military, his house was next door to mine. As I ran outside, I looked and he was standing over there with his military outfit on. That's so I ran to him. I said, "Let's go!" I said, "Where are we going?" I said. We we're being attacked because there was rumor that the Palestinians were coming into Afghanistan. I said, let's go defend the country. I said, before I go anywhere else with you, would you mind putting some clothes on? I looked down, I was only in my underwear. <laughs> I'd forgotten to get dressed. So I had to run back, get dressed, come back. And at that time, a friend of mine from the university and his wife were visiting me. And so I left them all and I went to see what was going on. Then when I realized that the coup was from a family member, Daoud. And was not an outside there because there was a bloodless coup, only six people got killed in that. So we, we, sort, of, uh, we sort of calmed down. Fast forward, 19, that, uh, during, the, during that coup, they closed all the clubs down because I think they wanted, they didn't want people to walk around the streets at night. When they reopened the uh, club, uh, there's full stories there. Um, I did not reopen the 25-hour, by that time I had established another restaurant, a supper club by the name of the Golden Lotus. Uh, And so the Golden Lotus was in full operation and uh, we were doing very well there and again we had a live band and music and a sunken bar and the whole thing. Um, In 1978, uh, the situation in Afghanistan was getting very hairy. Uh, the, the Communists were beginning to make a move and a Communist member was assassinated. I'm sure he was assass- assassinated because they wanted the Communists to take over Kabul. Uh, it was evening of uh, April 27th and my wife had just returned with our new uh, second child to Kabul uh, about month after. Um, it was the, eve- um, the uh, uh, early morning of uh, April 27, 1978, then I get a phone call from my brother, get yourself to the restaurant as soon as possible. So I got in my car, I had the only Jaguar and the only MGTC in Afghanistan. So it was very, you know, known cars. So as I drove to the intersection, the police saw me and said, don't go that way, there's something going on, go through the back road. So I went through the back road to the restaurant, I see my brother and everybody standing over there, And I said, what's going on? He said, look. And it was a really uh, horrible, windy day. I said, what am I looking at? He said, look. So I looked and I saw the soldiers full gear, you know, lying in these trenches which we call Jewies on the sides of the street. And I heard the sound of uh, cannon fire. Being uh, trained in the Afghan military, as a tank commander, I recognized the sound uh, being of tanks. So, uh, anyway, to make a long story short, at that time my cousin came in, we decided to go to our own homes, and uh, uh, when I was dropping my cousin off, this jet, uh, 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 whatever it was, this meg came shooting down, and I quickly turned the street, and my cousin ran towards, uh, you know, ran down the street, and this plane opened a fire, killing dozens of people, and my cousin got his leg blown up in that situation. So I went home, I saw my wife and I told her what the situation was and uh, um, I had just built a, a swing set for my oldest daughter in the garden in the evening while uh, she was putting the babies to sleep. I went and I stood under the swing and it was above my head so I figured that if they come in they will hang me from the swing so I did not want my family to see me, my children see me hanging from my children's swing set, so I called the, uh, my guard and I said, cut the swing set down to be below my neck. So that's what we did in the evening. Anyway, next morning, uh, Afghanistan fell in the hands of the communists, uh, President Dawood and 19 members of the family, we are all the same family, were massacred inside the palace, youngest, be, youngest one be two years old. And then Dawood and his brother, his wife, his sons, um, uh, daughter-in-laws, their children, 19 of them were massacred by the communists and the country fell in the hands of the communist regime. In 19, uh, uh, At that time when it fell, uh, I was informed that I was on the list of being uh, executed uh, by a member of the Ministry of Interior to get out of Afghanistan as fast as I could. I could not get out of Afghanistan because I did not have a regular passport. But I had, I had a false passport, which a friend of mine came, he said, give me that and I'll get it stamped. So he took my passport and he took it to the Ministry of Interior and had it stamped and brought it back to me. And uh, then we started making plans on how to get out of Afghanistan. My wife, uh, the American ambassador, ambassador Dubbs, uh, bless his soul, may he rest in peace forever. Uh, intervene on my wife's behalf to get her and the children out and uh, use the American influence to influence uh, uh, the uh, communist government to give her Hafizullah Amin was in charge at that time to get her out of Afghanistan uh, but she would not go without me even though she had permits to go uh, she would not leave me so we decided that we'd leave together. And so how do we get out? So my bodyguard contacted the Pakistani bus and uh, we decided to leave by the bus and at that time uh, the uh, vest that, uh, uh, it's not important but this is the vest that I was wearing and uh, hair was long and on, bl- dirty jeans and, and uh, we get on a bus with uh, 30 hippies and uh, <laughs> we were, she sat in the front with the two kids and my bodyguard and I was in the back of the bus, and uh, I took a Valium ten to calm my nerves down. And uh, I told the hippies what I was doing. They said, "So they hand me a guitar." I said, "What am I going to do with this?" He said, "Play." I said, "How am I going? Well, I don't know how to play. it, don't worry about it. Just do what we do." So as we we're going, you know, we come to a military checkpoint. Uh, the bus stops. Police get on board. They start strumming on the guitar. I start strumming on the guitar. They they light up their they light up their hash pipes, you know. And there was so much hash around me that by the time I got to the border, I was totally stoned.
0: <laughs>
1: totally stoned. And when I got to the border, uh, my uh, bodyguard, uh, I was I was told, "Don't worry about it." Uh, the driver, at the Pakistani driver, said, "I take all the passports. You just." get out of the bus, walk around, I'll take all the passports of the passengers, I'll get the stamped, I'll come back, and then you just slip back on the board, on the bus and we leave." I said, okay. But when we got to the border and he went and he came back, he said, I'm sorry they've changed their plans. They want to see each person individually with his passport. What am I going to do? So I decided to wait until about 60 or 70 percent of the passengers had gone to get their passport stamped. Then I slipped in, by the time I got to the guy, he, you know, I had my passport open like this. He had got into this habit, you know. Boom, boom, boom. So I put my passport down. He headed. I said, thank you. And I walked back. As I'm going back towards the bus, my daughter sticks her head out of the bus. Daddy! Daddy! So I ran behind the bus. And uh, anyway, so a, to make a long story short, to cross the Afghan border into Pakistan, there's one chain. And then there was about 50 meters of no man's land and then another chain. And there was this... Uh, moustached communist uh, uh, officer who was suspicious of me and uh, when we got to the first chain he stopped the bus and he boarded the bus and he went directly uh, to my wife and took her passport to read it and she had visa so no problem then he started checking on the passports and I was ready to say okay I give up you know take me three seats before he got to me uh, a soldier Boarded the bus and he said, "Sir, there is an important call for you from Kabul." Uh, said, "I'm busy." He said, "No, no, sir. They really want you. You must come." So the minute the officer left, the driver gunned the motor, and I closed my eyes and I felt the t- front tires going over the chain, and then the back tires going. Over. It, was, it was like a slow motion, you know. I need it now, you know, so we go through this, through this 50-meter uh, space, you know, then I saw, I felt the second, they go, the front tires go over the chain, and when the back tires went over the chain, everybody jumped up, you know, and we hugged and we kissed and, you know, congratulations and all that, and then the driver, all of a sudden I felt very, very hungry. So as the driver was driving, (laughs) there was a side road at Chaihana Tea House. I said, let's stop here and eat something. So we got off, and uh, I ordered eggs and naan and butter. And he brought me the eggs, but I could not see the eggs. It was all black. And I was wondering, how come the eggs in Pakistan are black? Until it got to me, and then I realized it was full of flies flying over it. (laughs) So it did not matter. (laughs) To this day, the taste of that food is very much alive in my mouth. It was. Then anyway, the rest of the story you will you will you will read uh, in in the book. But to make a long story short, during the time of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, I worked very closely with uh, the U.S. government, especially with. Uh, this is uh, President Reagan and in, um, in uh, November of uh, uh, when he got uh, the nomination for uh, the presidency of the United States Republican nomination, I sent him a letter requesting assistance for the Afghanistan to save Afghanistan from the jaws of the Communists It was a very it was not a, it was a telegram those days was all computer. so he sent me this letter his own signature um, uh, your. Um, generous words means a great deal to me, I welcome your uh, partnership in the cause. Uh, and he really did become our partner. A week after <laughs> he became the President of the United States, I received a call. Uh, Mr. Siraj, I said, yes. He said, I've been instructed by my government to see you. I said, which government? <laughs> he said, this government. I said, okay. And my wife was there, my cousin was there, and I said, this guy wants to meet with me. Who is he? So my cousin said, ah, this is a KGB is being sent because you've been talking about against the the, the, the communists. They're sending somebody to shoot you. So I told the guy, I said, OK. I said, what's your name? He said, I will introduce myself when I see you. I said, do you know my name? He said, yes, I know your name. I said, do you know what I look like? Yes, I do. I said, OK, then we are going to meet at exit 35 off of I-95 in Connecticut at McDonald's parking lot. So both my cousin and I, were put on our fog raincoats, you know, looking very distinctive, you know, like uh, undercover agents. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, and the guy said, I'm going to be driving a red uh, Toyota. My cousin said, "See, he's a communist. He's driving a red car." I said, "No, no, no. <laughs> we can't do anything. You know, let us go." So when he came in, he drove off because where the McDonald's is the exit. You know, it comes out. You can see the cars coming in. So the car came in. As soon as he pulled in the driveway, in the parking lot, we both went, and I stood by his door, and my cousin stood over there, make sure he couldn't get out. He said, uh, "Please, ID, ID, please." So he pulls out this uh, thing, and he shows to me. He was the uh, area uh, CIA uh, agent Spank. for the for the for the area, and uh, when I saw that, I said, "Okay, let's go to our house." So, we came home, and um, I told my wife, "I said, uh, uh, you stand. We, uh, we lived there very close to my father-in-law. I said, you stand over there. If anything goes wrong, you jump out and go and inform your father." So we sat down, and he told us point blank, he said. The government, the president had asked him to talk to me, what kind of American weapons could be sent to Afghanistan. I said, we do not need American weapons because we were trained on Russian weapons and we knew Russian weapons. Give us Russian equipment. He said, we don't have Russian equipment. Yes, I said, you do. Sadat of uh, Egypt was flushed with uh, Russian equipment. At that time, the United States had started to help Egypt with uh, American weapons. I said, please have you know get the weapons from uh, Egypt and send it to Afghanistan. Charlie Wilson takes credit for it. He has got nothing to do with it. Whoever is Charlie's book, I will stand to this day. I have weapon. I have witnesses. One is sitting over here. Others all over the place uh, had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then I have g- gave him a whole long list. He came back. He said, your refer- request of weapons has been accepted. Then he brought the list of 120 people of the communist members. Please identify these people to us. So we did. And then he disappeared. I never heard from him for a month. I did not hear. Then I hear another call. Mr. Sir, I'll pick, pick a thicker voice. <laughs> I said, yes. He said, yes. <laughs> we want you to go to the Sikorsky Airport in Bridgeport, sit at the coffee counter with your back towards the passengers, and somebody will come up to talk to you. I said, okay, so, I said, can we not be someplace said No, no, I said, okay, so I had a cousin who was trained in the military service in the U.S., and he was living nearby, nearby me, I said, you got to come with me, and you sit in front of me, if you see somebody coming from behind with a knife, you tell me what, to go left or right. <laughs> <You know? So laughs> I'm sitting over there, and my friend uh, is uh, sitting across from me, and then I felt somebody tapping on my shoulder. And I turned around and I looked. And there was a jolly green, green giant. I'm a big man. But this guy was bigger than me. And he had handlebar moustache and I could hang myself on one and swing <laughs> Really like this. And he did not even introduce himself. He said, follow me. I said, where am I going? He said, upstairs. I said, OK, but I have a friend over there. You know? He said, you're to come too. So, so we follow him upstairs to the conference room. And this long table, and we're sitting down. He said, my government has told me to, for you to introduce somebody to us, to go to the border of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and find out what's going on over there, and bring us a full report. I said, I will go. He said, no, 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 you cannot go. I said, why not? He said, because you're a member of the royal family. Your face is easily recognizable. And we do not want to endanger you. Give us somebody else. I said, there, my friend will go. So my friend says what?
0: <laughs> so
1: and, 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 and that, he says, why are you volunteering me? I said, why well, every, every evening you come to my house, you look towards the sky and you cry for Afghanistan. Well, this is your chance to go do something. <laughs> uh, anyway, he went. And then shortly thereafter, he came back. I said, what happened? He said, well, when I went over there, they told me that nobody should know that I was working for the U.S. government. And I told them that I could not be a spy. So they gave me a ticket to come back. I said, you fool. Why did you do something for the country? should said, I did. I introduced another man. I said, who did you introduce? This guy eventually became the Minister of Defense of Afghanistan. His name is Raheem Wardak. When I saw my friend, I said, see, you would have been the Minister of Defense had you followed. The... Anyway, <clears throat> so we, we fought a lot against. Uh, I, I went to, I was on the halls of Congress trying to get Afghanistan, uh, you know, the U.S. attention for Afghanistan. We did receive a lot of help from President Reagan. The reason, we lost three million of our citizens fighting the Soviets. One and a half million on the battlefield and one and a half million, which I call as a migratory genocide, because millions of our people left the country, uh, country and went to the mountains of Pakistan and deserts of Iran, and a lot of them died on the way. We had, in the beginning, before we received American help, we had nothing to fight with except our bodies and uh, hammers and muzzle loaders, you know, from the First World War, and so on and so forth. But when the uh, assistance came from the U.S., uh, and I was in the United States at that time, and I was invited to Groton, Connecticut, uh, to the Naval Academy to give a talk on Afghanistan. And at that time, the Russians were using the helicopter Mi-17 and Mi-26, mi 24s And one helicopter would devastate an entire village and we had no defense against it. So I was over there talking to these uh, the naval um, pilots about this. After I finished my talk, two uh, officers came to me, I don't even, even know remember their names, they took me aside They said, why don't you ask our government for Stinger missiles? I said, what's a Stinger missile? He said, the only thing that can uh, get down these uh, helicopters is, is a Stinger. So then I started going to the halls of Congress uh, talking about Stinger. Again, Charlie Wilson takes credit for that, he had nothing to do with it. Three congressional members helped, Humphrey of New Hampshire, uh, Don Ritter of Pennsylvania, and Charlie Wilson of Texas. They helped to get this through uh, the Congress. But uh, the idea of getting the thing was, I don't want to take credit, but you know, it's part of history that has to be known who did what, right or wrong. So. That was what broke, uh, turned the tide against the Soviet uh, Red Army. And uh, that is what uh, uh, brought uh, the war to an end. But the war did not end for Afghanistan. The war ended for Russia. But for Afghanistan, the war has been continuing since then. Because the communists continued to rule Afghanistan, then us freedom fighters like fools instead of taking advantage. Of, of, of the peace that was brought to Afghanistan, we started fighting among ourselves. And um, then, uh, after that, Osama bin Laden uh, appeared in Afghanistan uh, with his uh, 3,000 uh, troops, supported by the Pakistani military, ISI, and the services intelligence. And uh, the killing started, the bloodshed started running, and there was, there was no peace in Afghanistan. No Afghan from the age of 40 this site has seen one day of peace in Afghanistan. They've seen nothing but murder and mayhem. We have lost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of our people. Today we are losing uh, at the rate of over 150, 200 people a day, which is not reported. My main thrust is to what to do to bring peace to Afghanistan. Afghanistan's history has been, uh, we are 5,000 years old. Uh, we are, Our tribes have defended our, our nation against uh, the different invaders um, over the years, uh, including fighting the Soviet Red Army. But this time around, after Mr. Bush came to Afghanistan in 2001, to this day I do not understand the reason why uh, they had to turn Afghanistan into a battle zone. Because when, when, the, when the Taliban Al Qaeda were defeated, uh, in fact, the Taliban were such uh, b- 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 horrible fighters. In the middle of the city of Kabul, there are these uh, 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 tree, tall trees. And in order to hide from the uh, freedom fighters, they would climb the tree. And the freedom fighters would go shoot them like pigeons, you know, off the tree and In any case, after they were defeated, Afghanistan was at peace. But somehow, Somebody made a decision that Afghanistan needed help from 47 nations of the world. For the first time in the history of the world, 47 nations came to a small little country in the middle of Central Asia to help it from what, I don't know. The Russians were gone, the Communists were gone, the the Taliban were gone, and the Al-Qaeda was gone. But for whatever reason, to this day, nobody's been able to answer me that question. Afghanistan has entered the longest war in its own history and in the history of the United States. You have so far lost 2,600 of your young soldiers and you have got over 22,000 injured for life. You have spent a trillion dollars in Afghanistan. And I have been begging from the time of Mr. Bush throughout Mr Obama's administration and even now do not take away our right to defend ourselves. We have defended ourselves throughout our history. Our tribes always united to fight a common enemy. Let us defend ourselves. Somehow they they did not they did not listen and they have not listened and this thing is not going to end so quickly regardless of how many policies Unless they, unless they change their, the the U.S. changes its policy uh, towards Afghanistan and starts talking to the people as opposed to the selected governments that that, that come to Afghanistan, uh, we will not we will not succeed. So my my because my time is running short. Uh, my request is that wherever you go, whoever you talk to, and whoever wants to talk to me, I'm available. I this is I'm going on to my 40th year of my involvement for Afghanistan from 1978 to this day. And you would think that as a member of the royal family of Afghanistan with 250 years of history and 12 kings, that something would have rubbed off on me. Even if I would be a donkey on the street, you know, I would learn something from my family's history and from what's been going on. So why don't you come and ask me what to do, how to bring peace to Afghanistan? Why, why, why go to Pakistan, why go to Qatar, why go to Indonesia? They cannot tell you how to bring peace to Afghanistan. Only an Afghan can tell you how to bring peace to Afghanistan. And only those Afghans, the two gentlemen sitting in the back, they are, they, are the, they are the history of Afghanistan. Their families are histories of Afghanistan. And, and, and yet and there's a uh, young man uh, who started, there you were, uh, uh, Mustafa. Uh, he has started a, uh, a movement in the United States uh, here, uh, here right here in Virginia to get the young generation, uh, Afghan generation to recognize their history and recognize their past, you know, to work for the future. We have got the people, we have got the brains, but we need the help. Um, help us to help you or, you know, and that then we can help everybody. If you do not bring peace to Afghanistan, today in the world, in Central Asia, the only little light that's still flickering, flickering for the West is Afghanistan. Pakistan is gone, Iran is gone, uh, Libya, Syria is gone, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, they're all in the, in the hands of, uh, of, of uh, Putin. The only light that is left for the West is Afghanistan. If this light goes off, the United States and the West will not have a square foot of land in Central Asia. Putin will take over all of it. Is that what we want? Is that what we fought for? No, no, that's not what we fought for.